I want you to remember this. We went over there with armbands just for him to see. Now, the one thing that we did do wrong is we wore them over there. We probably should have just took them over there. We had decided before we left, if he said, no, we can't wear them, we weren't going to wear them, and we were going to play the next day. He did not give us a chance to even speak. He did not even give us the respect to come into the meeting that night where the governor was. He said he wasn't going to leave his house for us. He abandoned us. Willie Black abandoned us. The Black Student Alliance abandoned us. Howdy, and welcome to the YO Sports Podcast. I'm your host, David Graff. Alongside me is my co-host, Robert Munoz. It is a very, very special episode of the YO Sports Podcast today. We continue with our Poke Pros series, and we talk to Tony McGee. Now, you may be asking yourself, who is Tony McGee? He is a member of the Black 14 from the 1969 Wyoming football team. He finished up his college football playing days at Bishop College in Texas, and then he went on to enjoy a 14-year career in the NFL where he recorded 106.5 sacks. Coincidentally, his nickname was Mac the Sack. He missed only one career NFL game, He won the Super Bowl in 1983 with the Washington Redskins. And he'll tell you about another career that he's had for the past 20-some-odd years. So really excited. That's basically going to be the entire episode today. We had a 30-plus minute interview with him. Robert was on the call for about 20-ish minutes. And then technology failed him. As it has been doing today, this has been difficult to even get to this point where we're recording just this part for you guys. But first, let's hear from the man himself about these technical difficulties. Robert, how's it going? It's going great besides these technical issues like you just mentioned. I see that I'm frozen on the screen there. Can you see me? Yeah, I can see you and you're moving. So again, I think it's just your technical difficulties. Having bad luck today, man. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, great interview with Tony McGee. We're really glad he got to hop on with us. A lot of insight about what's going on, all the political movement that is going on. Um, We really hope that the listeners will enjoy, you listeners will enjoy this interview with Tony McGee. It was a it was a really good one from what I heard. Yeah, from what Robert heard. It was a fantastic interview. Honestly, as as I was conducting the last half of the interview, I was just amazed. Tony is unbelievably candid and honestly, his his experiences at the University of Wyoming weren't always pleasant even as a football player back in 19 in the 1960s as a white guy who went to the University of Wyoming I certainly did not experience the same kind of scrutiny that he did 
So it was it was eye opening to hear about that as well as just what it was like to play football at University of Wyoming back then. It's a remarkable interview, and because of that, I'm not going to delay any longer. Enjoy this interview with Tony McGee, member of the Black 14, 14-year NFL veteran, and just an all-around great guy. All right, we are thrilled now to be joined by a man who the number 14 has a lot of different meanings in his life. He's a 14-year NFL veteran and a member of the Black 14 at the University of Wyoming, Tony McGee. Tony, how are you doing today? Hey, doing good, guys. Great to be here again. Good opportunity to speak. Well, we really appreciate you joining us and talking about your experience at the University of Wyoming and then some time about your time in the NFL. We'll just get going with... How did you end up at the University of Wyoming? I know you're originally from Michigan, so how did you end up heading out west? Well, it was a long story. What happened was, during the time that I was in Dallas Creek, Michigan, our school was state champion, I think, two out of three years. We never lost a game 33-0, and and there was a lot of schools coming. Matter of fact, that was the same year when I graduated. Michigan State and Notre Dame were, were uh, co-champions, co-national champions. And Michigan State had been recruiting us quite a bit. And I'm going around the bush with this for a simple aspect to let you know my strong ties. And Michigan State offered me a full ride, Nebraska, a lot of big schools. But it was a young man from Dial Creek that I idolized. Matter of fact, his, his pastor was my pastor of my church. And he went to the University of Wyoming. He was an outstanding athlete there, and his name was Richard Strait. So I kind of went there. I went and visited, and he took me around. It looked like it was a good fit. And like I said, I followed him with school. He played, he was a great football, basketball, and track person. And I was pretty good in the football and the track. I couldn't play a good at basketball. But that is the main reason that I went to that school. I also liked Fritz Schirmer, who was the coordinator there at that time. And he recruited me. He came to Boston recruitment. But the main reason that I did go and I turned, uh, matter of fact, I had signed with Nebraska, and I I backed out of that, and I signed with Wyoming. Wow, that's pretty crazy to think that you could have ended up at Nebraska and you end up out at Wyoming because someone you idolized went there as well. Back in the 60s was kind of Wyoming's football heyday. Those were some of the best teams in the history of the program. What was it like just playing football at the University of Wyoming and in Laramie back then? Oh, well, it was always pressure field because we were one of the best teams in that time. They call it the WAC in uh, Western Athletic Conference. And at, at the same time, the year before, when we were freshmen, they had gone to a bowl game and done really well with people like Vicky Space and, and Jim Kick and a lot of guys, Dick Washington. It's the names you may not know about, but if you look at the history, those were some real good football players and Dean Huey and all of them. So uh, we came there and it, we were freshmen, and five of us were African-American, and we knew right there when we got in that the pressure seemed like it was on us to perform and be better than everyone else in our position. And I don't know if I can't say that was because of my only or just the situation. I know when I was a young player, uh, we had a thing called the Cowboy Derby where each position at the end of practice, after practice was over, had to race around the field twice. 
and every position had to have a leader. And if any of us five did not win, Eaton would say that we were, weren't hustling because we were that good, but at the same time, we were African American and they expected us to win. Other situations that let me know where I was, I can remember one day I walked into the cafeteria, I had done nothing to nobody. I walked in, got my tray, sit down, and a bunch of guys came over. Some had on cowboy hats and stuff. And asked me, who did I think I was? I said, what do you mean? He said, you walked in here like you're on the place. And, uh, I, you know, I kind of mouthed off to about 10 of them, and it followed me to the, uh, to the uh, elevator, and one of my friends came, and we were going to throw down one. But all of that was because they said I walked in like I owned the place. And then on another situation, I had a guy that, I tell you what, he matter of fact, he went up to play in the pros for a little while, but he had never seen an African-American in person until that time. So playing in Wyoming that time was a different time. You had a certain sense of pride. You also had a certain sense of the individual did not understand and know what you are, but you always were told just last and foremost that BYU, whenever we played them, all the African-American players pride us to tell us how they were treated on and off the field. And that kind of is something that resonates with throughout your career at Wyoming whenever you play BYU. You know that's going to happen. But once it happens to you, it really changes your thought process about the whole experience of Wyoming, BYU, and everything. Yeah, I'm sure BYU has a lot of different emotions that come up for you when you hear them mentioned. Let's jump to that 1969 season you had 11 sacks through four games into that season. Were you just yeah. in a groove, or how do, how do you get 11 sacks in four games? Uh, well, I was a pretty fast player, and they kind of figured out putting me out like a defensive end linebacker. And then I had another guy next to me that was outstanding. He was a defensive tackle. His name was Larry Mail. Should have been All-American. Should have been in the pros. I don't know if our situation hurt him, but I was in a groove, and I had seven sacks in one game against the Air Force Academy. They were nationally ranked, and I think at halftime they had us down by 10 or 15 points. And that was the one game I can remember that he didn't scream at us when we were behind at halftime. You would only played four games with him. He just came in and said, you got to know what to do, and we went back out and won that game. I had seven in that game, and then we had three other games, and I had one in each one or two and one or something like that, but yeah, I had 11 sacks in four games, and uh, it was outstanding. That's why it was a major decision for me when they wanted to uh, protest. And that's why I always want individuals to understand. I never protest the religion because everyone has a uh, religion that they feel secure and safe in as part of their life. I, I always protest the way I was treated, and not the way other players, but the way I was treated on the field as well as other African-American players. I kind of want to stick to that 1969 team. I'm just kind of curious, how good were you guys really before you and the other 13 members of the team got dismissed? We were uh, 4-0. We had won everything. As I said, Air Force was a nationally ranked team. And uh, UTEP was good. Arizona and uh, got the fourth when we played. All of them were high teams, were very rank, high, highly ranked teams. As a matter of fact, we were under, under the understanding that the NCAA had called the University of Wyoming and told them all we needed was two more wins and we'd be in the Sugar Bowl. And one of them was BYU and one of them was the next game. So 
uh, we were really good. And I can tell you, each position, you can break it down. I mean, you can tell, and the Black 14 was was prevalent at each and every position. We had two offensive linemen that were started. We had two receivers. We had a running back. We had defensive linemen. We had defensive backs. We had a defensive back in Jay Berry that, hey, this not happened. I'm sure he'd have been in the pros also because at that time, he was one of the first big safeties to be in college football, 6'3", 197, 200 then, run about a 4'6", 4'7", and one of the most outstanding. matter of fact, he had two TDs in two games, and that's still one of the records of Wyoming. So we, the Black 14, they were pretty good, the team prior, but they lost a lot of players. When we came in, we brought those players back in war, and uh, we felt that year we were going undefeated. So 50 years after the Black 14 protest and racism still an issue, how surprising is that to you? Uh, the similarities are somewhat true, and what it tell you has been a bandage put over a wound for all these years, and nothing has changed in a lot of ways, but things have changed in others. Uh, it doesn't make me feel good to see what's transpiring right now, but by my being a 70-year-old person, I've seen this prior. It just really was upsetting about it for this to be still transpiring at this day and age when so many strides and so many things we thought had been better, uh, they're not as good as we thought. So it, it, it kind of bothers me, but at the same time, I look at situations such as us, Wyoming, Black 14, uh, the school brought us back, and they wanted us, and BYU even wanted to be involved with it. And everywhere we were in Wyoming, we had fans coming up to us and apologizing for things they were not even involved with. So that really that helps you to it, it helps you to really change your thought process about the whole thing. But now what we're trying to do is go to the next level. And during our conversation, I'll tell you what we're doing with that. But, yes, it's kind of disheartening not for myself, but it's disheartening for the young athletes, the young people, and today's society that we're still going through the same thing in so many ways you can look and compare and see the same, same things happening. But I've never seen things like I've seen on television now that at 71 years of old age, this shocks me still. You say you're trying to take things to the next level. Could you kind of take on that for us, please? But what we're doing, and they have done so much in the last uh, two or three years, we've been working with the University of Wyoming. We have some programs that are going to be prevalent, and I'm not privy to tell you about now, but one program that the Black 14 is getting involved with, we are looking at this thing, and we want to be very impressive and game changing. We don't want to be individuals that the only thing we're known of is October 17, 1969, you were put off the, the team by a coach, and he, raced, he had racial slurs. And you guys were done wrong, and you were blackballed. No, nah, that's not the scenario right now. Wyoming have come back. We've come back, and now what we're looking for is we're looking at this pandemic, and we're looking at what would transpire afterwards. I think you, even though you're a young person, you kind of realize that the aftermath may be first and worse than this pandemic. You got 40 million people out of work. You got people that can't feed the people right now. They can't get their medicine. You got businesses is closing. You got things that even after this gets back, like they were saying on television uh, yesterday, that it's going to take a family nine months to save the money that they lost in one month so far. 
that's how scared money's going to be. So what we're looking at is how can we help with that? One thing we see is going to transpire that the way they are learning as now, because one of my sons is an instructor, he already has enlightened me to the fact that computers and, and visual learning is probably going to be the thing of the future for the next year or so. So what we're looking at on my television show is you probably have done the research. I, we're in our 35th year. What we do is we got different segments of the show, and one of them is the help at hand. And with the help at hand, what we do is we have we have scholarship contests, we feed people, and we help the vets. And we try to we have job fairs for the vets. But so what we do for the scholarship program is we have children all over the country that do essays, and we'll pick a subject. And what they have to do with the essay is write about it. And then we have judges, judges, and the winners, we give computers. Well, that would be good for now, but it's two parts of that. We want to make the way we can get kids computers, but there's some children out there that need computers and food. So we're working with different organizations. And you take, for instance, this, this is just an example. Say you've got a, a small hamburger place that they've been almost out of business. They get back in business, and they're selling their hamburger meals for $5 a meal. But we tell them, Sell it to us for two fifty. We don't take that money and buy computers for the underserved individuals in your community. So then we're gonna buy food. We're gonna give them the food as well. So what we're gonna do is they're gonna make money off the food. We're gonna get the food. We're gonna buy computers. And we're gonna feed people. So that's what I emphasize, and that's how we're gonna be game breakers. We're gonna have a computer contest, and we're not just doing it. We got five cities right now that we're looking at. We're gonna do it in Laramie. Colorado, Battle Creek, Michigan, Washington, D.C., and we're looking at one other city. But we're really looking at each of the Black 14 that's remaining. Once we get this established and going in the right direction, each of us are going to our hometown. Then by my being in the NFL for 14 years, I'm going to formal players, formal everything. Eventually, I like to even go to the Players Association, but we have to get a some kind of a platform or a format that we want to present, and that's what we're doing at this time. That sounds absolutely amazing. I mean, people are really privileged to receive that kind of thought and that what you're doing is just huge. I kind of want to go back to 1969, and I know Willie Black was kind of the guy who prompted you guys to protest when you went to play against BYU. Who was Willie Black? And do you happen to remember how he approached you guys when he did? Well, you know, that's a big question a lot of us still have. Who was Willie Black and, and what, how, how did he get involved? Well, Willie Black was the leader of the Black Student Alliance at that time. The Black Student Alliance had their own format. Their format was to put the homecoming was coming up. We were playing BYU, so they wanted to protest school's policy. Well, the black man could never rise to the higher echelon of man. I'll tell you how deep that was. I did tell you how it manifested through the time period that old players would tell young players, black players, what to expect. Well, it even gone, went over to the coaching staff, whereas when we went there, they would tell us, and we would usually stay in a hotel right across from the, the stadium and the church and stuff, and they would tell the black players, you can't go in that church. If you go in, you can only go in the vestibule or the, the hallway. You can't go up because... Uh, they don't allow blacks in there. So now that set doesn't set well with you. So uh, that's what Willie Black and the Black Student Alliance was protesting. Well, they were getting somewhere, but they asked us to come to a meeting one night. 
Well, obviously, you got a 4-0 team and your black athletes are your, your, your main athletes there. You bring power. And that's what I think Willie Black wanted for us just to show up. So when we came to the meeting, everybody was saying, well, we wanted this. And we explained to them that we weren't totally against the Birgham Young because of the policy. It's more or less the treatments. And when I say treatments, guys, we would be called out our name. You're talking about the N word. We get that all the time. We get the people jumping in the back of our legs. I remember one, the last game I played up there, a guy clipped me uh, and tried to hurt me. I went to the official, and he told me to shut up and play ball. That's when Larry Nell told me, that's all right, McGee, we're going to get him. He's the only player on my team that said anything. So, back to Willie Black. He got us to come, and we knew right away that we would be the part, and they said, well, well right, so we weren't going to just go in there and, and just be a part of a protest just because we're black or they want us. We told him about what was happening with uh, how things happened on the field, and that'd be the only thing we would consider at that time of doing. So they asked him, would we consider it? So we were very cognizant of the fact that this was going to be dangerous because we all knew what uh, Coach Eden was like. So we said, we're going to go back and talk to everybody else. So we went back, and they asked him, well, will you guys wear armbands or do anything? I said, we, we all knew that if we protest, against Eaton without his word, we were going to be put off the team. So we had to make a decision with that. So we went back and told the married players, which was um, uh, at that time, Jay Barry, uh, I don't think Mel was married then, uh, Tony Gibson, we had a few of them. We told them, you guys do not have to be part of this protest. So we very well understand that Eaton may take our scholarship. You guys have wives and somebody has kids and, and we don't want you be involved in this with all of them said that's all right we in. So we said, well let's do this. So Joe Williams, who was a captain at the time, had gone over and Eden had said something to him. So we said, well, why don't we do this? Uh we'll go over and I'll tell you the rest of that, but let's get back to Willie Black. We said we told them we'll consider wearing uh band, we're gonna go over and check it out with the coach. So Willie Black, lo and behold, told us don't worry about everything. If you get put off the team, we got teams waiting for you. We're going to do this and this. What Willie Black did nothing. He's just as bad as Eaton, as far as I'm concerned. He destroyed it. He, he had a good point, but he used a lot of good people to get his point across. And the thing about it is when we all got put off the team, he disappeared. And then when it got time to, 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 to speak up, he disappeared. He said a few things. So when you say Willie Black to me, that's like, that's like putting spit in my mouth. And I don't need nobody's spit but my own. And so Willie Black is not a person that I really like. He had some good qualities, but he played us and he played the school, in my opinion. I better put that down, but I don't want it to be like I, I'm giving you fake news. That's fair. That's completely fair. It was Tony McGee's opinion, if you're listening. I want to ask, how much did it open your eyes when you guys were dismissed from the program? It was it was frightening. And I tell you why, we were eighteen, nineteen years old. We were just told to go back to by our head coach to go back to the colored schools or either go back and get on welfare or he told me to go back and pick up cigarettes by South to see the Battle Creek and I don't even smoke, so you know that's how racist he was. And the thing about it, all the schools that they had said was waiting for us wouldn't even give us a phone call. So you had in peril. 14 individuals, 18, 19 years old, with no scholarship. And what we were not aware of, the fact that they were going to take our scholarship 
at the end of the semester anyway, or they would let us just finish out the semester. So everything started to transpire, and all the rules that he said we broke, they found out we didn't. And so somebody made him start changing. It's, it's whatever he was saying happened on this whole situation. And so he finally came back up to say, you can come back and try to win your job and uh, frame ball if you want to. Uh, and number one, after someone told me to go get on Negro Relief is what he did, I never played for him again, which I didn't. Uh, but number two, we felt like we were abandoned, not only by the University of Wyoming, not only by the state of Wyoming, but by the Black Student Union and Willie Black. Because none of them helped to do anything after we were out. With this. Nobody got nobody in school, but I did find out last year, now that's 49 years later, uh, two years ago, 49 years later, that some of the instructors paid for those, uh, some of the players to stay in school. I didn't know that, but they didn't pay for all of us. Eating them came back and asked two or three of the players to come back, but they didn't ask all of them. So you had a group of players out there that was trying to do right. And the thing about it, and this is one thing I want you to put down, and I, I, I don't know I'm talking to both of you. Am I talking to both of you, Robert and Dave? I want you to remember this. We weren't going to do that. We went over there with armbands just for him to see. Now, the one thing that we did do wrong is we wore them over there. We probably should have just took them over there. We had decided before we left, if he said, no, we can't wear them, we weren't going to wear them, and we were going to play the next day. He did not give us a chance to even speak. He did not even give us the respect to come into the meeting that night where the governor was. He said he wasn't going to leave his house for us. He abandoned us. Willie Black abandoned us. The Black Student Alliance abandoned us. So you got to see how we felt at that time. And that's why I think you can derive enough bitterness that you can hold on to us for 50 years. And there's a lot of guys that are not in position that I'm in now with my thought process. And they're still very, very bitter. I can understand. Yeah, I can respect and understand all of those emotions. It's completely unfair, honestly. And I see where you're coming from. You personally took that site, and then you ended up at Bishop College down in Texas. How did you end up down there? That young man I told you about, Jay Berry, he and I had become friends, and he was going back down to Bishop College. And uh, he knew he was a talented guy, and, and we were roommates. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm going to talk to the coach. I said, can you talk to the coach? So he talked to the coach. His name was Coach Dwight Fisher. He got on the phone. He interviewed me about 15 minutes and gave me a full ride. And they didn't even have full rides then. He worked it out where I could work and do stuff. And even at that time, I had a girlfriend, and they bought her down. That black school took me in, sight unseen. Now, they saw all the articles, and they saw that I was a good player. But, you know, they took a big chance. So, you know what? Now when people ask me, uh, how did I get in pro ball and stuff? If it weren't for Bishop College, I may not have gotten there. But I got another story for you when we finished that one about what happened with the pro ball thing, because Wyoming has followed me all the way to even now. Yeah, so tell me about that. Tell me about how that's how Wyoming has followed you okay, up to well, this day. Okay, well, I went day. to Bishop College. 
Well, they brought me in, and I played defensive tackle there. Uh, we had nine games, and then nine games, I had like 109 tackles. I made black college All-American, All-Texas team. And then I made the All-American team, the, the Chicago Tribune, which is supposed to be the best 48 players in the country. They had a game every year where you played against whomever won the Super Bowl that year prior. That year prior, the coach I won it, so we were playing Bubba Smith and all these big guys. But the thing that caught my attention is uh, I was one of the starters, and I was after practice one day, and I had got drafted in the third round by the Chicago Bears. Uh, Chicago Bears scout came up to me and said, you know what, man? He said, all you got to do is play ball. He said, we were lucky to get you. He said, you were going number one to the Los Angeles Rams, which they didn't take me. They took Jack Youngblood, who was at the 48 with me. We was on that thing. He was one starting in, and I was the star defensive tackle next to him. They took him, and they said, the reason they took you is when they called and they were taking you first round, uh, the Rams would take you. Wyoming said you were the main troublemaker. So I dropped to the third round. And every time in my career followed me, uh, and every now and then, all the way even to now, I've been out of the game for 30 some years. But Wyoming always still jumps up. And, you know, I, I, if you look at my stats in pro, Jack Youngblood, and the reason I use his name is he got drafted in the first, I got in the third. He played 14 years, I played 14 years. He missed one game, I missed one game. Now, he did go to a Pro Bowl or something in the Super Bowl where we didn't. I had 106 sacks. I don't think he had 100. He played, He and like I said, he played in all the games. Our stats are so similar, but he went to the Hall of Fame. I got nominated, but I didn't get elected. So there's another thing Wyoming helped me not to derive. So, you know, it, it, it was a big thing. And like I said, I owe a lot. Well, first and foremost, I owe a lot to my parents of bringing me up because we got to quit. But if Bishop College hadn't stepped in there, I ain't planned on I wasn't going to give up. I was just going to go around and find somebody that would give me a shot. Because I knew at that time, uh, you know, I could run a 4 or 540, so I knew I should be good enough to go somewhere. And uh, lo and behold, Bishop College came and gave me that shot. And here we are talking today. Yeah, here we are talking today. You've had quite the life. That's why it's unreal to me. I mean, you mentioned all of your stats in the NFL as well as you won a Super Bowl. Your nickname's Mac the Sack. What What are you most proud of from your time in the NFL? Most time in the NFL, what I'm most proud of, being involved, I guess, in two Super Bowls and winning one. And because I, I've looked through that, I, I played in, 203 out of 204 games. And just think, I only had two chances to play in the Super Bowl. Some guys are great. Like, you hear about them, and, but they never even get a chance to play in the Super Bowl. So I look at that as being the most rewarding accomplishment because not only it wasn't about me, it was about the team. And the team won. And the team was good enough to go back the next year. And the team was made up of individuals that wasn't supposed to be superstars which I fit right into that. The team was made up of people that was on other teams and they didn't think they could get the job done. But you had a coach like Coach Gibbs that knew people and knew that everybody had a position in life. And that's what we need to be learning now. If you take care of your position, you'll take care of your part of the life. 
So that's what we had on that team. Everybody knew they had a, a part to play, and they played it. So that's what it was most proud of. But I was proud of uh, being able to last that long, being blessed to last that long. And the one thing that I do hate uh, out of the 14 years, the one game that I missed, I didn't have to. And we lost that game seven to nothing. And had I known that'd be the only game I missed, Mike, I took the easy way out as a young guy. I had a bad ankle. They told me to take the week off. I could have played. And we lost that game seven to nothing. And that game sticks out in my mind still because I didn't do my part. That's amazing. That one missed game still haunts you to this day. I want to wrap it up here. I've got two final questions. This is a little bit more lighthearted, but I read on your LinkedIn that you were a uniform inspector for the NFL. Can you tell me what that means? That's a nice, nice way of putting it. My kids call me a snitch. (laughs) (laughs) What I do, I've been been doing that for 28 years now. 29, I think. Let's see. Yeah, 29, 28, 29 years. And what it is, they had some guys doing this early. And what that is is individual detective uniform for television purposes as well as compliance. Say, for instance, a Nike got you uh, and they want you to have on their pants, their whatever, their jersey, and you got to have their logos where you can see it. You can't have other logos on the sidelines. Different ones have logos. So what they got us in, you can have some individuals do it, and these individuals will be arguing and, and fighting with the players during the game, so it was a distraction. So back in, I think, it was 1994, they started bringing in former players to do it. We were the first group. And what we do is we would inspect the uniforms. At that time, one player had to inspect both teams, had to inspect both benches, both locker rooms, both sidelines, all the officials, all the players, either players who were playing. So it was a bunch of stuff. Then you had to do your notes on it. You had to give them a warning at the, at, after warm-ups, then you give them a warning at halftime. Then after that game that night, you have a, you got to have your report in New York on that desk by the next day, uh, 24 hours after the game is over. I've been doing that, and now I'm doing it for Atlanta. I did it for Washington for like 26 years, I think, and I've been doing it for Atlanta for two. And so, you know, the one thing I can say, uh, I've been blessed, and the one thing I live my life on is longevity. I mean, you know, me and my wife have been together for 48 years, and, you know, my kids, me and my wife are on the physical therapy. It's like 14 because we own that for 14 years. You know, and we try to be consistent, and that's not. And I brought that up for to tell you this: it's not just me. If you get an opportunity to talk to other Black Fourteen, the one thing that Eaton and the Black Fourteen and what they did to us that time didn't define us. It didn't give us the old woe is me. It gave us the impetus to go out and try to be as successful as we can and be consistent, not be too faced and lie to people, but go out and try to do what you say. And so, you know, it made it groomed us into being strong men. Now, I'm not going to be uh, idiotic and say that all of us turned out that way, but the majority did. And the one thing you can say, it didn't break us, it didn't define us. And the one thing about it, we're still at this late and advanced stage of our life trying to make it special and trying to make a difference. So, that, you know, that's, that's what we try to do. Well, you answered my last question, Tony. You have one of the most fascinating lives I've ever read about. I could sit here and honestly, I could talk to you for hours. I really appreciate your time and thank you for being so generous with it. I really appreciate it. Tony McGee. 
14-year NFL veteran, member of the Black 14, show host for over 35 years now, and, according to his kids, a snitch. <laughs> no question. But you know what? I want to thank you, too, both of you guys. And you know, because a lot of guys do this right now. I'm talking to both of you, Robert and David. It's people like you will get the real story out. It'll be times where the 14 will not be able to and not be here to tell the story. And the story should be told the way it is. It doesn't have to be of hate and mistrust and distrust. It has to be of what happened and what transpired to make us all better. And that's the scenario that we, the Black 14, are going to produce and put out there after this pandemic is over. But without people like you guys that put the real story out there, uh, it's just uh, operation and futility. So I thank you guys. And anytime you need to talk, just get back with me. That was Tony McGee, 14 year NFL veteran, member of the Black 14, graduate from Bishop College in Texas, and a Super Bowl champion. And if you're willing to agree with his children, a snitch. Now, those are his kids' words, not mine. I didn't call you a snitch, Tony. I'm just using the words that your kids call you. I'm just kidding, though. Uh, that was an amazing interview. It was an absolute treat, and I really appreciate Tony for his time. He was more than generous with it and even flexible when I'm not sure if I got the time mixed up. Let's go with I got the time mixed up. So he was amenable to the time change and giving us even more time than I had initially asked for. So I really appreciate him and for doing that. And I'm really sorry that Robert had some technical difficulties. Like I said to Tony at the end of the interview, I could honestly talk to Tony for another few hours and he might be getting just random phone calls from me during the week to ask questions about what it's like to be Tony McGee because he's lived probably one of the most interesting lives that I've ever heard of. There should be a book about him. I mean, you go from Michigan, like he said, you follow your childhood, you know, idol, somebody that you idolized growing up to the University of Wyoming, which I'm sure was kind of a strange thing to process for him. And you play football there. You make history at the University of Wyoming by being an athlete activist and being a member of the Black 14 and standing up for something that was bigger than yourself. He said he was never protesting the religion, which is fine. He was protesting his experiences, the injustices that he had faced, which warranted a protest. They were absolutely like they were just egregious. I, I don't really know how I can't describe his experiences, but what he told me made me sick to hear hear that. So he he experienced that. Then he goes from probably a first-round draft pick, at least top five probably, to all the way to the third round. Still enjoyed a 14-year career in the NFL. Won a Super Bowl. Has hosted a show for over 35 years now. And is a uniform inspector for over 20-plus. So talk about consistency. You know what you're getting from Tony McGee. You're getting something that is amazing 
and something that is interesting, just like that interview. You touched on it all, David. I mean, I don't have too much to add. Not much going on in the sports world this week. So, and we know what's going on right now is obviously a lot more important. So we're glad we could provide this interview for you guys. Hope it means a lot. I know the MLB, the NBA are working out agreements. I don't, we know that NBA is getting ready to play the end of July, but besides that, there's not much going on. And like I just said, this is a lot more important. So glad you guys could give that a listen. Yeah, we're really glad that you guys are listening to the podcast now, and we really hope that you enjoyed that interview with Black 14 member Tony McGee, as well as a 14-year NFL veteran and probably one of the most interesting guys to ever walk the earth. I can't say that enough. We're really, really appreciative of him sharing so much of his time with us. Robert touched on it. There's not a whole hell of a lot going on in the sports world. The NBA is supposed to return at the end of July. The NHL is returning with 24 teams, but I'm not really sure when. The MLB may just never return and break everyone's heart if you're a baseball fan, but that's okay. We'll be back next week with the podcast, though. I can guarantee that on Wednesday we'll have another Poke Pro member. We're going to have Seattle Seahawks tight end Jacob Hollister on with us. And we'll talk to him about his experiences at the University of Wyoming and what it's been like to play in the NFL. He's gone from a walk-on at the University of Wyoming to undrafted in the NFL, carved out a niche role with the New England Patriots. And he had a pretty good season when Will Disley went down for the Seattle Seahawks at tight end this this past year. So... We'll be talking with him. We'll see what he's been up to during this quarantined offseason. And and hopefully there might be some sports news from the University of Wyoming or the Mountain West Conference or something that's noteworthy to talk about next week. We're working really hard on this Poke Pro series for you guys. So I really hope you guys are enjoying it. You're listening. You're subscribing to the podcast. In addition to Jacob Hollister next week, After that, we have Wyoming legend on the defensive line, another another defensive line legend, Mitch Donahue, who he he was very generous with his time as well. He's going to be on the podcast the week after that to end the month of June and the June version of the Poke Pro Series. So really excited about that. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. We love when we see that there's a new review on the podcast, it it honestly gets me excited. Robert and I text back and forth. We're like, ooh, we just went up to 11. We're not at 11 yet, but that's what I'm going to say when somebody rates the podcast and we get to 11. So please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. That way you don't have to worry about going and finding it each week. It will find you. It will automatically download wherever you enjoy podcasts. So please do that as well as if you feel so inclined, please donate to the podcast at the link in the description. You can follow myself on Twitter at Mr. David Graff. You can follow Robert on Twitter at R Munoz 307. That is R M U N O Z three zero seven. And you can follow me on Instagram 
at David Graff there. I think that about wraps it up for us this week. Shout out to Shakewell for the music. Go Pokes. Stay safe out there. And stay warm if you're in Laramie. I hope you survived the snow. Just